This is from Psalm 103. Um, I think one through five will be printed. We're actually only going to get through verse four. Uh, This is Psalm 103, verses one through four. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits, who forgives all your iniquity, who heals all your diseases, who redeems your life from the pit, who crowns you with steadfast love and mercy. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we confess we are, we are blind and deaf without the help of your Holy Spirit. So we need your help this morning. We know you are seeking people to worship you in spirit and truth. Um, but without your help, we cannot see your worth. We cannot see your glory. And our hearts are cold and hard. So Holy Spirit, open our eyes, soften our hearts, and do the work to change us and remind us of what is true. Help us to believe what you say about yourself. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. All right, so children are going to stay with us this Sunday, which is a joy. Um, so I actually want to start by speaking to you kids here. Uh, how many of you earlier this summer went to vacation Bible school. Do you remember that? I know it was a long time ago. Feels like forever, right? Okay, well, when Noemi and I first moved here to Albuquerque, um, it's our first Sunday here at City Press. Uh, you guys all went up here, and you sang some of the songs that you learned, and you showed us some of the stuff that you learned, and it was, like, super awesome. It was really encouraging for our first Sunday here. And you actually reminded us, when we were in a time, you know, a lot of uncertainty, a lot of things were changing, you reminded us to trust God. But I wonder something, though, uh, because believe it or not, I actually was once your age, and I was going to VBS and all that, right? And, And sometimes I didn't feel like singing, you know, I didn't, I didn't feel like clapping. I didn't feel like doing the motions. Um, I don't know, maybe I was distracted, right? Like, maybe I thought, oh, I wonder if people think my shoes look funny. Or maybe I was thinking about, like, what we're going to have for a snack later. Um, sometimes, though, I just plain didn't feel like it, you know? Um, have you ever felt that way? Maybe at VBS or maybe at church? Right, well, today we are going to look at a part of the Bible where King David is maybe feeling that way too. Right, and we're going to learn what he does when he maybe doesn't feel like clapping or doing the actions, right, or maybe doesn't even feel like singing at all. See, David is going to remind himself that God is good, that God forgives him, and that God loves him. So, I just want to. Put this in your mind now, if you're a drawer or a note taker or a scribbler or whatever, wherever you fit there, see if you can fit this into your drawing somehow. I'm not a good drawer. Maybe you can do it. Um, See if you can fit this in. Remember, God loves you. Remember, God loves you. It's simple, but it is what this whole psalm is about. Now, the good news is that for the rest of us, Adults, uh, we never have that problem, right? We, we never feel that type of cognitive dissonance in us when we're worshiping. 
Uh, I want you to think about what was stirred up inside you, uh, maybe while we sang that song, Bless the Lord, O My Soul, or while we read through the call to worship, or even just when we read through this text just a bit ago, um, or if we could jump forward, the climax of the psalm in verses 20 through 22, you can picture David just like shouting from his roof to every living and non-living thing, telling them to praise and bless God. What does that make you feel? I just want to say that if you're here this morning and you read a psalm like this or you see a, a response of worship like that, and it leaves you kind of saying, man, I wish I was there. Like this psalm is actually for you. So David recognizes that worship isn't coming naturally for him, and he's trying to change that. He's giving us kind of a a sort of master class on how to move our hearts. He's showing us how he moves his heart to worship. He's giving us a roadmap for our hearts to travel in. So we're going to watch David do this kind of in two parts. Um, We're going to look at our wayward hearts, and then we'll look at why God is worthy of our worship. So if you're an outline person, which I'm not a big outline person, Uh, Hopefully not a big red flag for the engineers or systems people in the room, but um, you can kind of follow along here. We've got the janky wheel and the worthy God, okay? The janky wheel and the worthy God. So first, David begins the psalm by charging himself to bless the Lord. Now, if you've ever spent much time in the psalms, you'll start to see this kind of like self-talk is very common, right? In Psalm 42 verse 5, the writer is in like the pit of emotional and spiritual depression and despair. And he says, he says to himself, why are you cast down, O my soul? Why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him. Or in 146 verse 1, we read, praise the Lord, O my soul. Again, speaking to himself. What is going on here in this kind of self-talk, right? These writers are recognizing they inside are divided, right? One part of the person is speaking to another part of the person that is not in accord with their belief. And right off the bat here in this psalm, David assumes that he needs to direct his heart toward God. It needs coaching, it needs direction, And that if he didn't do this, he might not just naturally love the Lord with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength. All right, now in our modern setting, right, we are very impulse-driven. We're we're very feelings-oriented. I've addressed that already a little bit. I ask you how you felt about something. Um, And and we as a society, right, like Disney has really uh, taught us well, or or not well maybe, um, we can be really good at listening to ourselves, right? We We can be really good at following our whims and our fancies, and that inner voice has become kind of so sacred that we can really step into trouble, right? If we, if we say anything to anyone else that contradicts that inner voice of theirs, and, and if we're, we're doing that to ourselves, we're trying to suppress some inner voice of ourselves, we almost see that as some kind of self-harm. Um, but sometimes we need to be able to speak to ourselves rather than just listen. Now, 
to clarify here, I'm, I'm not talking about some kind of like Christian stoicism that just like ignores or stuffs down all our feelings, right? Our, our feelings are a good part of our, of our created nature as humans, right? They can be good. They can be bad. They, they tell us things like if you're tired, you need to listen to the fact that you're tired and embrace the fact that you are a creature and not a creator, right? You need to rest and accept your God-given limitations. If you're feeling sad, there may be some legitimate thing that you need to grieve, some broken thing you need to lament to God for, to wail and to cry, or just sit with him in silence. Your feelings may be telling you that. But these psalms do teach us, this psalm here, 103, teaches us that there is a healthy place in the Christian life, a need even, for speaking to our wayward selves, the parts of us that are reluctant to worship, that are cold in our affections toward God. So uh, when Noemi and I moved here, right, we moved into a house uh, out of a like 700 square foot apartment. It was super tiny. Also, some of you helped us move. Very grateful for that. That was such a blessing. Um, but needless to say, we had a pretty empty house and we needed quite a bit of inexpensive furniture to kind of fill it up. So we went to Ikea uh, one day when we were in Houston uh, visiting my in-laws and we got one of those carts. I don't know if you know the Ikea carts. Uh, you like put the flat pack stuff on it. Um, now, the Ikea carts, like, they're very free-spirited as it is. Like, all four wheels spin independently, uh, so they just kind of float around. Um, but this, this cart, uh, it was, like, the worst one I have ever gotten, right? I've got, like, all these heavy boxes on it, and I'm trying to push it through the warehouse in a straight line, but, like, I'm, I'm pushing at, like, a 45-degree angle to get this thing to go that way, kind of straightish, right? Um, that is, like, not... a totally inaccurate picture of the Christian life, believe it or not. And, and some of you might really need to hear this today, right? If you've ever wrestled thinking something like, man, why don't I just like roll over first thing in the morning and want to read my Bible? Or like, why don't I pray as much as I want to? You might think that no one else around you in church has that issue, you know, everyone else out there is just like they're crushing their Bible reading game or, or their, their parenting or whatever. Um, but that's not true. Like we are all these kind of beautiful, janky IKEA carts, if you'll, you'll let me use that expression. Like we're, we are new creations, right? Christians are transformed from one degree of glory to another. We grow, we put off the old, we put on the new. The Apostle Paul says all of those things to describe the Christian. But he also says in Romans 7, he says this about himself. He says, for I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing that I hate. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members another law waging war against the law of my mind and making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? This is a picture of the normal Christian experience. And like Paul, it is something that we have to grieve on a regular basis. It should make us cry out 
for deliverance and hope and look forward to the day when our hearts will be free from that pull to the side. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Take my heart, Lord, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. We sing. We're here in the meantime. And so like David, we have to learn how to speak to ourselves. We have to learn how to coach and direct ourselves. So if David knows that he needs to correct and direct his waywardness, his wayward worship, right? The question then becomes, how does he do that? Verse 1 through 2, he says, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and all that is within me. Bless his holy name. Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. What's his idea here? Right? He is... He is laying out a case. He's about to lay out a case. The reason our hearts are so prone to wander is because we have the constant tendency to forget all his benefits and run after all of these other things that we think have benefits. Now, I wonder, don't have to raise your hand, how many of you have experienced that literally by Sunday afternoon? Right? You, you lift up your hands to receive the benediction, you walk out the doors, you're full, you're nourished, you're convinced, your memory is refreshed. You might even think like, I'm pretty sure I've, I've thought this before, like, sin? Why would I ever do that again? But then three o'clock rolls around, you snap at your kid for interrupting the game you're watching, or you find yourself caught back in that habitual behavior. Only a few hours ago, you said there's no way you'd wind up there again. Right? We are no different from David. We forget. And so if we're going to make it through this life as Christians, we need to learn how to remind ourselves, how to make the case to our hearts that there is only one who is worth the kind of praise that David is describing here. So, so let's now, we're going to look at David's case. This is point two, the worthy God. And we're going to basically be asking the question, why should we worship the God of the Bible with all of our being? Why is he the only one worthy of sitting on the throne? Now, I worry some of you might hear the word throne we don't really have thrones nowadays. And you might just kind of maybe raise your eyebrow a bit and let it pass you by. Or you might think like, like I don't have a, th- I have a throne in my heart or a throne in my life. Like, I don't worship anything. You know, I'm agnostic. I'm atheist. Like, I, I'm not a worshiper. I'm not religious. But I want you to think about this. I want to challenge that assumption. What is a throne? Right? What does the throne symbolize? What is its function? A few things. Ultimate authority, right, where law and truth and order come from. The final say on matters, where the buck stops. Uh, The most sovereign, powerful, and valued person in a country who everyone else sacrifices to prop them up. And maybe another one is, it's, it's whatever you look to when there's a threat or an injustice, right, what you look to 
or what you put your trust in to look after you, to protect you, or to rescue you, or to set things right. Right? You have at least one of those in your life, whether you know it or not. It's what you appeal to for final say, right? Maybe it's science. Maybe it's your own self. Maybe it's your own inner voice, right? Uh, it's whatever you happen to be making sacrifices for in your life. So maybe uh, it's your career and you've sacrificed your family for a promotion. Uh, maybe it's personal happiness or maybe it's your family and you refuse to forgive certain people because you absolutely have to stay in solidarity with your family. Right? Your family is on the throne in your life. Or maybe all your hope is wrapped up in a political party getting into office and setting all things right, and you find yourself saying, like, to quiet the noise, like, I will finally be able to relax when so-and-so gets into office, when such-and-such bill gets passed, or whatever. And this belief that this is true, it goes so deep that you have literally killed friendships and family relationships on that altar. Right, you've come to build your whole life around it. So if you're here and you're kind of new to this idea of worship, uh, having a throne in your life, and you're starting to ask yourself, like, what do I worship? I want you to listen closely as we consider David's case here, and I want, yourself, want you to ask yourself this question, right? Ask yourself, can I look at any of the things that I put on the throne in my life and honestly say, truly say what David says about his God here? How do my gods compare to David's God? All right, let's look at David's case here. He says, the God who forgives all your iniquity, heals all your diseases, he redeems your life from the pit, he crowns you with steadfast love and mercy, and he satisfies you with good so that your youth and your strength is renewed like the eagles, right? This is a God who at his heart is a giver, who is kind and generous, who forgives our waywardness, right? His own creatures, who he has blessed with life and dominion over the creation, who have then rejected his authority, his goodness, and the good law that he gives them to show us what human flourishing looks like, right? To show us how to live lives of love. And in the face of rejecting all of that, he is a God who forgives. A God who loves to forgive. Do you know that God loves to forgive? He loves to forgive you. He doesn't do it begrudgingly like most of us do. Now, if you want a picture of the father's eagerness to forgive you, look at the parable of the prodigal son. If you aren't familiar, uh, you can read it later this afternoon in Luke 15, 11 through 32. But I'll summarize it here if you're not familiar. The younger son asks the father for his share of the inheritance prematurely, which in that ancient Near Eastern culture, it would have been basically like saying, like, okay, let's act like you're dead so I can have the money now. And then he goes and he spends it on like gambling, prostitutes, etc. And then when he spent it all and he's starving to death, 
He decides to return home, just kind of hoping to maybe make it in as a hired servant. But then the dad sees him coming from a long way off, the son who has said, let's act like you're dead. He sees him and he abandons his place. The father abandons his place, his, his rightful dignity. He hikes up his robes and he sprints out to meet the son who spat in his face. And he calls for a feast. He puts a ring on his finger and a robe on his back, on the back of the son who wished him dead. The father is eager to forgive you. God himself in the flesh, in the person of Jesus Christ, came to earth to do it, to die on the cross and cancel the record of debt that stood against you because the Father is eager to forgive you. David then says, the God who heals all your diseases. I want to acknowledge that this is difficult. Um, We at least know that David had a son by Bathsheba who died in infancy, right? Despite God was perfectly able to heal that baby if he had wanted to. So I don't think we should believe that David had some kind of like health and wealth gospel framework when he wrote this. Um, But I, I recognize that this is a difficult promise to read because some of you here have lost loved ones because they weren't healed, right? Um, you, you've battled chronic conditions for decades that haven't been healed. And you read this and you say, like, what do I do with this? Do I just disregard this? Or if this is true, why not me, God? Why do you say this in your word and then not do anything here in my life or in the life of my child? I've asked these questions too. Um, at, at one point in my life, just literally night after night for several years. Um, the Bible doesn't give us answers to those specific questions. I know that's not a happy place to land. Um, we don't get the veil pulled back in God's mind. But it does give us the promise that in the new heavens and the new earth, there will be no death There will be no mourning or weeping or pain, no tears. And I think we get the veil pulled back just a little bit when we look at Jesus' ministry, right? He goes around, and you notice his ministry, it has spiritual and physical dimensions, right? He is both spiritually and physically healing hundreds of people, one after the other. Your physical restoration whether it's now or then, matters to God, right? He has promised full restoration of your body. He sees your affliction, and he has promised full restoration and glorification of your body as well as your soul. He then goes on to say, God who redeems your life from the pit... Now, some of us here maybe feel this imagery very keenly, and others of us, uh, maybe this wording feels a little foreign or kind of far off, like uh, over the top or something, like, oh, a pit. Like, well, it wasn't really that bad, was I? Sounds kind of melodramatic, maybe. Um, 
The person who doesn't realize that they're in a pit doesn't look for a savior or for a redeemer, right? This was the problem with the Pharisees that Jesus was confronting in his ministry, right? There is no room for the kind of testimony that says a sort of gospel like this. I pulled myself up by my bootstraps. I dusted myself off. I changed my ways, and I started living right, started getting myself right with God. That is not the Christian testimony. Paul says, For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, not by works, so that no one may boast. The only thing we have to contribute to our salvation was a sin that made it necessary in the first place. And, and maybe some of you might say, whoa, like that sounds kind of harsh. <laughs> um, Jesus tells a parable of two men who prayed to God. Uh, one of them went home justified. The one who went home justified, the one who was saved, wasn't the one who was at the top of the religious social ladder who prayed like this. He's like, I give a tenth of my money. I do this. I do that. I don't do this. I don't do any of that. Um, no. The one who is saved was the one who is like below the, below the bottom. He realized the only thing he could say to God was, please have mercy on me. Please don't give me what I deserve. David here is reminding his soul, he's saying, David, do not forget. You were in a pit without hope, without light. But God brought in, went in and brought you out and saved you. Bless him. All right, I'm going to close with this. Um, this is maybe the most counterintuitive thing here. Um, David says, the one whom he worships, Yahweh, the maker of heaven and earth, who dwells in unapproachable light, who has a name that no one knows but himself, Revelation says, this God puts a crown on you. He not only forgives you, he not only restores you, he lifts you up out of the pit, he gives you a new boast, new privilege, new status. He makes you royalty. Royalty and status built on the foundation of his undeterred covenant love, his promise to love you and to keep you and the bottomless well of his mercy toward those who love him. Now, honestly, some of us, and I'm, I'm right here with you, um, like you see the crown of mercy, and you're like, I don't know that that's a crown I want to wear, <laughs> right? Like, I want to wear a crown that shows how great I am, right? What I've achieved, what projects I've worked on that did really well, how well I've raised my kids, right? It's not normal to want to wear around the fact that we need mercy and forgiveness every second, those are things that we hide, right? That's the kind of need that we hide. Is that not why we hide our sin from one another? Why we just kind of put on the, like, oh, I'm, I'm okay, I'm all good, like, all's good here. Uh, we put on that kind of mask, that facade. And we try instead to make our own crowns 
out of our job, out of our stuff, out of our good deeds. But I want to leave you with this question, right? Let me ask you this. How do you think the church, and I, I mean capital C church in the world today, I also mean City Press here, how do you think the church today would sound and look different to the world around us if we threw every crown down except for this one? If our loudest boast, if our pride and joy as people was we are loved by like an otherworldly, unquenchable love that we did nothing to deserve. And we have finally found a source of mercy deep enough to match how big of screw-ups we are. Friends, no other God is so merciful. No other God has promised to love you regardless of the cost to himself. No other God pulls you up, washes you, and puts a crown like that on your head. So bless his name. Wear his crown. Let his mercy be your boast. Let everything in you bless his holy name. Let's pray. Father, thank you that this is true that you really are like this. Um, it just goes against the grain of everything we can imagine uh, about who you might be. Um, Holy Spirit, help us believe it, please. Um, let us embrace Jesus and worship him. In his name we pray, amen.